Here's Parks Associates Smart Tech Check podcast with Mark Vina. Hi everyone, my name is Mark Vina, leader of Parks Associates Smart Home Research Practice and welcome to the Smart Tech Check podcast where we cover all consumer tech topics of smart home, home automation, security, console gaming related and much, much more. Today is Tuesday, July 27, 2021. We're back to my regular format like we did last week, and I want to tee up some great hot tech topics in the, in the news with a few of my favorite tech journalists. So let me introduce some faces who have, are, uh, have appeared multiple times on the podcast. Rob Pegarero, who writes for USA Today and Yahoo Finance. John Queen, who writes on technology for the New York Times. And Tom's Guide and Stuart Walpin, who writes for Twice and Techlicious, among other pop, uh, very, very um, well-known publica- uh, publications. Wow, that's what happens when you're doing a podcast uh, in the afternoon. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Thank folks. You. Good to be here. How are things? Sticky, again. You know, I, I ask that question. I ask that question every week, and I, you know, I don't get a really robust, hey, things are great. You know, I'm a Yankee fan. Things are not that great. Okay. I'm a Nationals yeah, fan. Things are worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Mets fan and things are... Hmm. You know, I mean, there's a couple of you guys that like, I'd division. like to trade you guys at the, at the trading deadline, but I can't do that, you know, for an option for a player to be named later. But we got we do have some really hot um, tech topics I do want to go through. And uh, the first one I want to go through, if I could pull it up on the screen, uh, and this is a great topic for us to talk about. Um like the repair legislation, is it practical? And the reason why I bring that up is that this topic is not a new topic. It's been uh, bandied around uh, for at least a couple of years now. Uh, and uh, I, I actually struggle with it, honestly, but I want to get everyone's opinion on it because there's, you know, there's a consumer dimension to it. You know, obviously, if a product can be repaired less expensively, consumers love that. There's also a manufacturer's angle to it that many of the products out there are not designed from the onset to be repaired. And that does have an implication because when you tell an industrial designer, hey, design a product in a certain way and it has to be opened up um, to be repaired, not all the time, but very often the product will be a little more challenging to repair. It won't look, it won't look quite as uh, sleek, you know, from a, from a, just from an overall design standpoint. So I want to do get, I want to get your uh, opinions on it. So John, let me let me start with you. You know, what's your take on the whole right to repair legislation topic? Well, you know, this is really, um, I mean, people think of iPhones and things like that, but it's really an automotive issue uh, it started with, you know, those shaped mechanics. I used to fix my car all the time. I was constantly fixing it, putting in new stereo equipment, and, you know, doing the thing that teenagers do to cars. But you can't do that anymore. You know, there's so many used electronic control units in these cars, and the issue was people swapping them out. And... And sort of boosting their car by putting in new computer chips and microprocessors. Obviously, OEMs didn't like that very much. They could stress out the car, prevent, you know, increase wear and tear. That was part of their argument. But they pretty much all the codes, repair codes, are secret, or they were secret to the OEMs. It's made it very, very difficult to repair a car on your own. Um, and I've done it a few times, and sometimes all it required was taking out that module, unplugging it. And putting a new one in that was like a hundred dollars instead of a five hundred dollar repair. So, <laughs> you know, this was really a consumer. It was pushing consumers and also to try and kickstart that old twelve volt industry. The, the repair. 
add-on industry that wasn't there before. Rob, you were you were vacant last week, so I'm gonna let you tee up the topic. What are you what are I'm you thinking? Vacant lots of weeks. So John's right that this is not just a consumer issue. It does get a lot of attention when it's, you know, will Apple let you replace the battery in your iPhone? Um, there's a big dimension of this in agriculture where, you know, if, if you buy, I'm told, if you buy a new tractor or a combine or whatever, uh, it's really expensive. And fixing it is also really expensive and it is made more expensive than it has to be. And so that's one issue that a lot of these laws are, are trying to address. And it's not a new one. I, I just remember when you mentioned it, this was one of the one of the few good ideas the Republican candidate for governor of Virginia had back in 2017, <laughs> mandating oh, the right to repair to help out Virginia farmers. Mm -hmm. um, and it really should be a bipartisan issue because it gets down to, you know, using things like licensing agreements and control of one set of codes or another to limit people's economic freedom. So, you know, Dems can hate the big company abusing its power. Republicans can want to stand up for you know, the individual who wants to fix their own tractor or wants to fix their own car. Mm -hmm. The downside is if you get into issues of detailed product design, which is usually a recipe for, uh, you know, the law of unintended consequences to show up and rear its large and ugly head. So, so Stuart, for those consumers that are not buying tractors, because I don't think that's a, I don't think it's a big market, for, you know, the tractor market for consumers is really not that big. I have to check my data, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. Do you have any sympathy, Stuart, for manufacturers who want to design sleeker products? And then this is a consumer electronics um, focus. Well, uh, I, I, th I think this is a both sides are right, and I am not sure that there is a one-size-fits-all solution. As both John and Rob point out, tractors are not cars, and cars are not smartphones. And to say that all three of those things are all of the right-to-repair items are all the same, I think, is overly simplistic. That's the first thing. The second thing is there are springing up a number of state laws that seem to be different. Uh, which is just going to confuse the issue a little more, especially as people move from state to state or somebody buys something in one state and then uses it in another state. Um, so there's all sorts of conflict. The uh, FTC put out a, uh, what was it called? Um, nixing the fix. They put out a paper in May, a couple of months ago, on some workshops that they had done with automobile and smartphone manufacturers, amongst others. I don't know if tractor manufacturers were included. To try to figure out what the problems were. And it seems it's going to be up to the FTC to come up with a set of overarching rules that would apply to both manufacturers and hopefully to repair shops. I think the, the biggest issue is the right to repair. The problem seems to be laid at the feet of manufacturers when I think that repair shops have an equal responsibility here. I don't think a repair shop should have the right to repair anything if they're not authorized to repair because that just simply boosts the consumer into getting a bad or a very expensive repair. So I think solutions have to come from both sides. Um, and I think there are pros and cons of the argument, which is a much longer conversation. Yep. Well, and you, and you know, to your point, Stuart, Apple has very, very strict um, rules for its um, third-party uh, uh, repair 
uh, network of dealers that uh, they have to do things in a specific type of way and they're trying to maintain the level of quality and, and, and uh, that that their dealer network, not Apple itself, but the dealer network that they work with to repair their products. So, you know, I, I, did, you know, I look at it from a product standpoint that, you know, the you, you, on one side of the world in the consumer tech space, you've got the Dells of the world which design their computers for configurability and, and at the factory, you know, so you can add memory, add storage, and they, they, Dell's always done a great job, you know, doing that, just to use laptops as kind of a proxy for the discussion. And on the other hand, you've got the, the Apples of the world that design a MacBook Air that whatever options you want, you've got to order it at the time it comes out of the factory. And by the way, if you try to open up the uh, notebook, you avoid the warranty in most cases. So... I, 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 guess the Mark, I think there's two issues there, though. Yep. What you're talking about is not a right to repair. What you're talking about is a right to expand. I think that's different than a broken device that has to be fixed. Be fixed. I think one of the problems that Apple has that it seals its containers in such a way, a lot of times gluing them or using other methods that you can't open them, which affect both the right to update and the right to repair. Yeah, I would say the topics are related, uh, related, Stuart. Because the one tip day, I give to anyone what? listening here is um, before you buy a laptop, go to iFixit and check the repairability because <laughs> that, that is going to be it, it'll be a factor in its long-term value if you can in fact replace or repair a component easily right. down the line right i think one solution that i don't think i have seen suggested yet is for the government instead of making restrictions instead of using a stick they should use a carrot and that is go to manufacture to repair shops and go we will give you a tax credit if you be, pay the cost to become an authorized repair center for whomever you want to be an authorized repair center. I think that would go a long way to easing consumer concerns and expand the breadth of repair centers as well as the opportunities for repair centers to take part in the repair business. Well, this is one of those topics we could talk about forever because everybody's got an opinion about it and I don't know. Call me crazy, but I'm not sure I want a bureaucrat, you know, designing legislation about the design of a product. <laughs> but I, I digress. You're, you're crazy. <laughs> I'm a crazy guy. All right, let's hit the next topic. And that is, and I and I forget, I, uh, Rob was, I think it was Rob. Was it Rob? You teed up the whole issue around the, the Biden administration retriggering the net neutrality um, activity. Uh, I, I've I've only been writing about net neutrality. Well, the way I put it at a uh, panel a couple of years ago, I'm serving a life sense of writing about net neutrality. Actually, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I can talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm not doing, let's start with you. So we have sort of conflicting messages here. Uh, the Biden administration is saying, you know, the FCC should reinstate the net neutrality rules that the FCC got rid of under the Trump administration. But the FCC cannot and will not do that as long as it's in a 2-2 tie, two Republican appointees, two Democratic appointees. Um, that won't change, is guaranteed not change until the Biden administration names a fifth member of the FCC. And we know they've been no slouch at naming people for nominations as judges, lots of other positions. Most tech policy reporters I know are really confused what the holdup is. 
since you can't come out with this huge white paper on competition policy and say the FCC we encourage them to do these things, well, <laughs> the administration needs to do its job first. Right. Um, you know, as for net neutrality itself, you know, I think I've been covering it long enough. I can give a very convincing argument for it, having these rules or against them. Um, I think the idea that any individual ISP is going to start charging Netflix extra for carrying its data. If it was going to happen under the last four years, it would have. On the other hand, there's lots of mischief that ISPs do in terms of violating users' privacy and whatnot, that the FCC could readily step in with the authority it had under the old net neutrality rules. Right now it can't. The Federal Trade Commission can, but the FCC is completely swamped, although at least that does have a full slot of commissioners. At least think it has a full set of commissioners now. So, you know, this all ties into a bunch of other things because right now the FCC is basically locked away a lot of the tools it had to police things besides ISPs impeding content, slowing it or charging for paid prioritization because it's all tied up uh, in the, the same sort of regulatory bundle. And when it said, we're not gonna view ISPs as title two utilities, um, you know, the, the acting commissioner can complain loudly, can strenuously object to when an ISP does something that is anti-competitive or customer hostile, but there's not really anything the FCC can do right now. John, John, I think John wants to make a point. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel like, doesn't everything those carriers do is customer hostile? Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> we'll be getting to some later on. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, they don't have to impose these fees, you know, when people say, well, we don't impose these fees because they're getting them paid anyway already. You know, Netflix is already paying. Lots of people are paying uh, for prioritization. So, uh, yeah, it's fr it's definitely frustrating. Um, you know, it really needs to come back so that uh, and there's a lot of throttling that goes on uh, in all of these carriers. So, um, yeah, it, it's definitely frustrating, but Rob's right. I mean, they need to get that fifth person in there. They need to tip the scales the other way and, and uh, get it back. But, you know, having Pi there was kind of uh, the 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 uh, fox in the hen house, right? He was the Verizon guy <laughs> saying, oh, gee, I don't think we need this net neutrality stuff. And I once had a interesting breakfast with somebody very high up from Verizon who started in on that argument about, Net neutrality, and I just about threw the eggs and everything at them during breakfast. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the way it was designed, and these companies are making a lot of money off of something that they did not invent, and they did not create, and they did not design. So it seems not right if they're taking it over and sort of. Um, and there's a lot of concern too about the globalization of the internet and who has control over it, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully they'll get this sorted out, Rob. You're in DC. I'm in New York, so I can't do anything about it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm doing what I can, you know, one, <laughs> one tweet at a time. I want to give Stuart the last word. Stuart, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, the last word is zebra. No, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, not only are we missing a seat on the FCC, the the current chairman is only acting, uh, Jessica Rosenworcel is only Jessica acting. I think one of the delays is the fact that she's going to have a new boss, and that new boss is the Office of Science, Technology, something, 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 the first level, cabinet level, science 
um, advisor that the president's going to have, who is Dr. Eric Lander. And he was only Senate approved at the end of May. Now, he is primarily involved in biological science and the health. And so I think he has been focused far more on getting involved in the whole COVID-19 issue than he is on the high tech side. And I think that's one of the problems with picking a guy like Lander, who has a world of experience on science, not so much on technology. But my I'm not sure guess, about that read. By well, statute, again, the FCC is an independent agency, so Obama couldn't just order them to do net neutrality. Right. Well, happening. Lander's, Lander's portfolio includes the FCC as the science advisor. So my only and I'm, I'm guessing because I don't know that they were probably waiting for Lander to finally get Senate approved and have Lander at least involved in some level on the decision on who the FCC, who Biden was going to pick for the FCC. My That's true. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's not how you should run it. You know, the FCC affects policy much more directly than the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. I'm not disagreeing with that, but my reading of Lander's portfolio is the FCC falls under his purview. That's the way that I read the legislation in enabling his appointment to cabinet level. The FCC is not cabinet level. So the way that I read the way that the division of responsibility was that the FCC is titularly under Lander. That's the way that I read it. Uh, if I, I, I may be wrong, that's the way that I read it. So the, I can't think of any other reason why this has been delayed so long. And that's the oh, only can. thing I could come up with. It's going to be interesting to see the way this issue pans out. I mean, it, it's got a lot of moving tentacles to it. And anytime you know an issue like this is affecting the carriers, which obviously it does, it just gets really, really messy. So well, there's, I mean, a, there's a second issue here, Mark, yeah. is that the reason that I believe one of the reasons that Biden did this was because there's broadband policy between either 65 million or 100 million or a million, billion, whatever the number is, um, in the infrastructure packages that are before Congress at the moment. Right. And because those are there, they're going to need the the reason he, he invoked these rules is to make this part of the infrastructure package. So if one of these packages get passed, he's going to be pushed to get the FCC to full strength. Yes, absolutely. No, I agree. That's the implication. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see the way this pans out. You know, I, I'm not sure everyone knows what the answer is going to be, but uh, it's a very, very complex issue. But I want to move the, the, uh, the discussion along to the next topic here. And I love this topic, and I'm glad that uh, Mr. Figueroa teed this one up because I, I like when, when, my, when my fellow journalists here, uh, they love to bring up personal <laughs> issues in their, in their day-to-day tech life. And it looks like uh, Verizon crossed your ire, uh, Rob, and it uh, looks like uh, they finally are shipping streaming apps. Finally, Comcast has been doing that forever. Uh, and, but it looks like they were hiding a $20 monthly fee. So... Let's talk about it's like that. Verizon, why you got to be like this? So yeah, th- th- this is a this is a drum I've been banging since like the mid 2010s, I guess. And under the prior FCC, under Obama, there was this proposal, ditch the box, to mandate that pay TV providers provide you know some way for third parties or at least ship streaming apps. And the cable industry said, you know what, we'll do it. We're we're already shipping streaming apps, which was kind of a lie. It didn't actually happen. And mm-hmm. Verizon has been a leading indicator, even though in other respects, you know, two years ago, they changed up their TV pricing to eliminate a lot of the things that people hate. 
Uh, Fios TV, no longer, the price is no longer buried in the cost of a bundle. It's the same whether you, you know, if you, if you pay for Fios Internet, Fios TV, uh, you don't have to get it. You won't pay more for your Internet if you don't. The price you see doesn't have fine print local channel and sports network fees waiting to be hidden. But they've always charged too much for hardware. And so when I saw, and this got picked up by a lot of Mac news sites, oh, great, Fios TV, Apple TV app. Not the mobile apps where you could, you know, watch TV on your iPad. And eventually they added Chromecast and AirPlay support, but an actual real app for Apple TV and for Fire TV. And I was writing this up for one of my trade club clients, Fierce Video. And I thought, let me just see where they show this in the order flow. So open an incognito window, plug in a friend's address, you know, act as if I was setting up a new service. And it says, do you want streaming service? $20. Do you want streaming apps? $20 a month. Really? And the <laughs> pricing structure is you will get screwed on this unless you're going to replace at least three rented boxes. And the way, first of all, Verizon thinks people are going to appreciate seeing this little surprise halfway down the purchase funnel. Uh, number two, that this is the ultimate in junk fees. You know, the, the apps don't cost $20 a month to maintain. This is Verizon charging money because it can. Yes. And at the same time, Verizon has been bleeding subscribers. They had their earnings call, I think, on Wednesday. And, you know, they've lost about a fifth of their pay TV customer base in the last four years, more than a fifth. And yet the subject of video subscribers never came up. It's right. as if they're done with this. And, you know, I can't tell they're just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks or they're just going to go for just total rent-seeking behavior with the remaining Fios TV customer base, which I should note includes my mother. So this is personal to me. Uh, and it's like everyone complains about cord cutting and then does things that accelerate it. So right. I'm just not interested in hearing any whining from big telcos about how bad the video business is. Uh, John, your thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree with Rob. This is sort of like, they're casting about to try and come up with ways to, you know, keep the revenue up while they're losing subscribers. And um, they're just, you know, going to shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, the more you do things like that, the, the worse you're going to make the situation. Um, instead of adding more features and more technology and more options for people, they're, they're taking away or charging for things that people get free from everyone else, which just right. seems crazy. Um, it's why I have Roku boxes on everything. <laughs> I just get fed up and like easier. Just plug in that Roku yep. box, whatever you're running, and you get everything. And you know, um, but it comes back to our discussion before too about Spectrum still fighting with Roku about their app being on Roku and yeah. stuff. Like, mm. I, I think it should be on Roku. Just a hint that maybe you might want to keep it there. So anyway, that's my opinion. I, I can't leave this topic without asking Stuart's uh, get, getting 45 seconds on, Stu on Stuart's thoughts on this. Well, I think this is a competitive issue. I think, uh, like Rob said, Verizon is charging it because they can. And, of course, $20 a month is insane because a Roku box is $40, you know. So <laughs> Not per month. Whatever it is, it's really, really cheap. Um, yeah. In fact, I just got one. I mean, TiVo boxes, for instance, have a number, not all of the ones that I want, but I think this is a competitive issue. And I think that at, at a certain point, all the cable providers will start including OTT services in their boxes simply because they're going to have.
have to. Consumers right. are going to start demanding not having to switch inputs every time they want to watch Apple TV or Verizon Prime Video or Netflix or whatever. So I think this will be competitive this year. And I think that the technology as well as the competitive space will force cable companies to start including the OTT services on their boxes. Right. Now, I, I think just to conclude on this topic, I think Rob nailed it. If you're trying to do things to encourage more cord cutting, this would be it. And yeah. and and I and I and by the way, I, I've uh, been um, I implemented I have Comcast back in uh, San Jose, and I have actually been able to throw all my boxes out the window. With the you do need one box to enable the, the service, and, and you know there's a lot of issues I have with Comcast from time to time. Uh, but one of the they have not charged they are not charging for you to use the streaming apps uh, and and by the way their experience is actually pretty good it's 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 almost a set top box like experience so there is a way to do this the right way and uh, I'm you know that's that's a uh, it's really strange that Verizon who's you know shedding customers uh, are, is going down this path because this is not a very consumer friendly type of uh, course of uh, action for them let's get the next topic. And John, this is your topic, e-bikes, continuing to, continuing to flourish during the pandemic. Let's, uh, yeah. let's uh, let you uh, see this one off. Yeah, it was really taking off before the pandemic in Europe. I mean, e-bikes had yeah. become really a big, big thing there. Uh, much more of a bicycle culture. People were trying to encourage their use here. You know, it's a way to get seniors on bicycles in warmer climate in neighborhoods where they don't want vehicles and bikes maybe just that much easier to get on um, Commuting was a good idea because you didn't show up at work all sweaty because you had an electric as this. It was a much better solution for a lot of people trying to commute to work in their suit or whatever back when people did that. Um, yeah. So, but during the pandemic, a whole new thing took over, and that was, of course, people didn't want to be on public transportation. Um, we're probably going to see that persist um, in places like New York and cities um, that people will be shutting public transportation. These e-bikes provide a great option, and so they've just been impossible to get. I review a lot of e-bikes, and um, they're often, you know, they'll lend me one for a few days because they just need every bike they have. Rob, do you take your e-bike to work? Are you, are you, are you well, my commute to work is walking upstairs. That would be a no. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, I have seen, I've, my, my bike is is old enough to uh, not just to vote, but to drink. Uh, so <laughs> I've now gotten accustomed, if I'm going for a ride, you know, around D.C., that I will hear this whirring noise behind me and somebody will just whoosh past me on an e-bike and make me feel even older than I already do as I'm wheezing up the trail. And for that matter, Capital Bike Share, our uh, bike share system, they've they've added e-bikes, and they're, they're at all the stations, and you see people rolling around them as well. And especially when it's as hot and humid as it is in D.C., you know, anything that generates a little bit more of a breeze is a good thing. So I, I can see why they are so popular and worth paying a little surcharge per ride. Well, you, well, you know, it's amazing, and I do want to get the last word from Stuart on this, because he looks like an e-bike type of guy. Is that if you look up, <laughs> when you find, go into Kickstarter or Indiegogo or any of the 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 uh, the, uh, the the, uh, the uh, funding campaigns that you see out there, and I kid you not, I, you probably will see thirty or forty different e-bike companies, startups, trying to get their um, you know their little piece of heaven, 
uh, and it's an exploding category. Um, I don't know if I want to spend a couple thousand dollars with a company that I've never heard of because that's, to me that's a considered purchase. But it is a very, very um, um, a big market and it's only getting uh, getting bigger. And then I, I think during the pandemic, obviously, for the reasons that John outlined, it certainly got a little bit of a kick in the pants, although it was there was a lot of momentum before before the pandemic started. Any any last words uh, on this, uh, um, Stuart? You couldn't get me on an e-bike if you hate me in New York City. Oh, come on. I'm sorry. I'm just an old scaredy cat who thinks he looks terrible with a bike handling on his head. Um, I, I've been offered any number of e-book review, review opportunities. I've turned them all down because the thought of taking even a regular bicycle into New York City traffic scares the bejesus out of me. If everybody on the planet or everybody in the city would be riding an e-bike, I would probably get one. But as long as there's still semi-trucks riding on the streets of Manhattan and bus lanes and all and, and taxi cab drivers, you, I'm barely, I'm barely brave enough to walk on the streets of New York, much less get on an e-bike to ride on one. John, you know, Stuart, I would pay money to see you on an e-bike going to City Field to see the Mets. <laughs> it, would, it would have to be a crap load of money. <laughs> well, let's go to the last topic here before we uh, conclude the podcast. And that is, and this I got This was my topic, and I got I, I cannot not be amused by this. Is that yesterday? Uh, it was reported that Apple was going to attend NAB for the first time in ten years. Now, and then I think maybe it was two hours ago. I checked on Apple Insider, and guess what? Apple has removed themselves from <laughs> NAB. So obviously, there's some marketing communications manager someplace at NAB that's probably going to get their hands slapped, or maybe they'll get their hands. That person will, will, get, will get their hands slapped at, uh, at Apple. But the reason why I bring this up is that there's this kind of fiction that goes on that Apple doesn't go to trade shows, you know, and they do go to trade shows. You may not see, you don't see them on they the They just floor. don't exhibit. They just don't exhibit. But I can assure you, they're, you know, they're in, they're, uh, when there are trade shows going on, by the way, let me caveat it by saying when there's no pandemics going on. But to me, this is just so amusing. And, uh, I just want to get your quick reaction to this because I just think something like this literally, you know, is a story for like 24 hours because yes, they're going to be there. No, they're not going to be there. So I want to get John's reaction real quick to that. Well, I think, you know, everybody would love Apple to come to their trade show, no matter what trade show was, you know, if it was CES or anything, please, please come to our trade show. So I, I think uh, they just, I don't know exactly what happened there, but somebody <laughs> jumped the gun, right? There was like, Apple will be there. It'll it'll be amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, I, like you guys said, they're there. They're just not there, on the floor, right? So uh, you have to meet them in the hotel. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, when, when MacWorld was around, that's one of the few trade shows I never went to. You know, and oh, I was, it was so much fun. I, I, I heard that they were they it were was. fun trade shows. They, they, yep. That was a fun trade show. But Rob, what are your thoughts on um, this kind of little bit of uh, silly news here? The last twenty. Yeah, hours? Apple, Apple was never going to show up in NAB. That didn't make a whole lot of sense because yeah, they just don't do it. Uh, you know, MacWorld was almost more like a multiple day Apple event. Just <laughs> you know, they had the advantage for me as a journalist. It. it ended before blogging became a thing. So you go to San Francisco, follow your one story, 
by three o'clock, it was at the editor's desk. Then you could just do whatever for the rest of the day. <laughs> uh, and now they just have their own events and they're all virtual. Um, you know, I do wonder about NAB as a large show happening in Vegas because, uh, you know, next week there's the Black Hat and DEF CON conferences, the two security events in Vegas. And I am registered to go to Black Hat and I'm about to cancel my flights for that because the numbers are going all the, the wrong way. Uh, in much of the U.S., but especially in Vegas and even in Clark County, where the fully vaccinated rate is only 40 percent. And it's a conference in a city with a giant tourist demographic that self-selects for poor risk management. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And of course, it's hotter than the surface of the sun in Vegas in <laughs> August. So you can't That's really. It's in October. It's a little bit better, but I don't know. Stuart, you you can close us out on this topic. Well, I think I think Rob has hit on it, and I think it has to do with a pandemic more than anything else. Really? Um, remember, okay. Apple was going to reopen for all its employees at its spaceship, and then decided not to because of COVID. So I have a deep suspicion that it's that this is a related issue. That maybe it had intended that Apple had intended to go to NAB in some way, shape, or form, either as an exhibitor or in a hotel room, but then because they decided not to force employees to go back to work, that they decided they didn't want to force employees to go to Clark County where the vaccination rate is so low. So I think this might have more to do with the pandemic and the fact that I'm surprised there's an NAB or any convention right now to begin with, um, then it has to do with whether or not they thought they belong there or not. Yeah. Well, it's always interesting to me here. And, you know, believe it or not, the battery light on my notebook is about to pop. Uh, <laughs> so we have to end the podcast there. Um, listen, guys, listen, thanks for your time. Really appreciate you uh, uh, contributing to the podcast once again, like you uh, normally do. Please follow uh, the uh, Park Associates Smart Tech Check podcast on our usual social media suspect partners at Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And until next time, have a great week.